When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. scared that is so normal let's pretend for a second that this is not a death visit so we're going to see mr taylor he was a math teacher his whole life he likes fishing with his grandson and he watches jeopardy every single night and he's very good at it Mom, you got this hospice is a terrifying word for many it means that you're on your deathbed but nurse hadley helps her viewers see it as something that's not so scary but more as a way to say goodbye to loved ones to be tended to with dignity and let go of the fear of dying However, while she's known for kindness and compassion to patients, this isn't the case for many hospice facilities. Lawsuits surrounding poor treatment in hospice are relatively common, resulting in loved ones dying in terrible pain and deplorable conditions. Stating to my sister and, and myself about this, this is how we remember our mother. We can't get this out of our The peaceful head. death surrounded by family that she should have had was gone, and the final hours of her life were filled with complete suffering. Not only is this horrible for anyone to go through, but it's clearly traumatizing to any family that has to witness it when they're trying to say goodbye. But maybe these are just outlier situations. Many people do die peacefully in hospice, right? That may be true, but the industry is still even more broken, even more corrupt under the surface. In recent years, we've seen hospitals accused of pushing patients towards hospice and of life care when they could be treated. Why? Allegedly, it's to improve hospital performance metrics because those who die in hospice aren't included in performance or mortality metrics. Basically, it just makes the hospital look good. Doctors put her on a ventilator and into a coma. But after kidney failure and a series of mini strokes common in COVID, about a month after her admission, staff began urging her mother, Alma Salas, to transfer her daughter to end-of-life care and let her die. And money is a factor too, of course, because when insurance runs out, hospitals are picking up the tab. Therefore, they want to push patients into hospice to open up a paying bed. CEOs get monetary benefits from good hospital performance. Doctors and nurses are pushed to open up beds that shouldn't be open. And worker shortage has resulted in staff that does care being completely overwhelmed. There is no easy way to fix a system so broken to its core. But today, I want to talk about how hospice has become so broken in the first place and what, if anything, can be done. She was trying to pressure me. Hey, do you really want to live your life taking care of your daughter? vegetative state for the next 30 years. Essentially, we watched her drown. We watched her drown for hours. The worst of it was I could feel myself dying. Ronnie Talon says his mother, Julia Querendongo, drowned in her own secretions, fluid allowed to build up after this lawsuit claims the team at Brighton Gardens Nursing Home didn't properly administer the medication the 82-year-old was supposed to be getting in her final hours. Hospice, of all industries, is one that should not be run by greed. 
But as anyone in the U.S. will know, our healthcare system is broken beyond belief, and that unfortunately includes hospice care. Actually, let me rephrase that. That especially includes hospice care. Another time, she says, six or seven HCA staff members gathered at her daughter's bedside, urging her to end her treatment. One nurse, Salas says, was very aggressive and came in repeatedly. She got really angry. I was, like, taken aback. The pressure Salas describes exists at some of HCA's other 170... One article I found exceedingly helpful was the one from Ava Kaufman at The New Yorker, How Hospice Became a Nonprofit Hustle. And I want to go over the details of it with you now, because honestly, the entire process has become a jumbled mess of deception and manipulation. First and foremost, the way that hospice is pitched to people can be quite a problem. Take Marsha Farmer, for example. She represents Asura Care and spoke with Ava about her job. As Ava wrote, Farmer would travel through rural Alabama, keeping an eye out for dilapidated homes and trailers with wheelchair ramps. She'd look at church prayer lists for names of ailing family members, canvas birthday parties, chat with veterans at the American Legion Bar, you name it, she knew where to find elderly sick people. Quote, We'd find rundown places where people were more on the poverty line, she told me. You're looking for uneducated people, if you will, because you're able to provide something to them and meet a need. Farmer, who has doe eyes and a nonchalant smile, often wore scrubs on her sales routes, despite not having a medical background. That way, she said, I would automatically be seen as a help. If that sounds really fishy and kind of predatory to you, then you're not alone, because it sure as hell sounds that way to me too. Hell, in Marsha's pitch, she often didn't even tell people she was selling hospice. She just portrayed it as a government benefit that offers nursing visits, medication, and housekeeping for free. Then she'd pressure families into a quick decision with the line, why not try us for a few days and close the sale? because that's effectively what hospice is to Asera Care, a sale. And if someone is stable, needing less medications and supplies, then all the better for the companies that benefit from larger margins with long stays. It's no wonder why Asera Care has set up target goals for hospice signups, firing employees that can't make those targets. Plus, companies like Asera Care have found ways around the government's rules around long stays too. For example, if a patient doesn't die within six months, as hospice is intended to be end-of-life care, then Medicare basically demands repayment of the services they've covered. So Care and others like it will literally dump their patients if they, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, they will literally dump their patients if they don't die fast enough. Quote, the industry euphemism is graduated from hospice, though the patient experience is often more akin to getting expelled losing diapers, pain medications, wheelchairs, nursing care, and a hospital-grade bed that a person might not otherwise be able to afford. I'm not about to say that this is the case for all graduates, but it's definitely not exactly some happy, time-worthy cap-and-gown situation. Companies like Cura HPC imply that it's just a reevaluation, and the two primary reasons are health improvement or choosing to discontinue care, as if it's a celebration or a decision entirely up to the patient. In actuality, though, graduating often isn't leveling up like the name suggests. It's being expelled from the care you actually need. The American Geriatric Society explained that for dementia patients, this form of live discharge is especially harmful. Unlike advanced cancer or AIDS, the lifespan of a person living with dementia, or PLWD, is notoriously difficult to estimate, meaning that they're often tossed out of these hospice programs. 
APWLD will lose their healthcare team, medical equipment, pharmaceuticals, all of it when hospice ends. Then, chances are that family will need to care for them, resulting in a vastly larger likelihood of caregiver burden, three times more likely than those with other diseases. And just to be totally clear, this is only one way in which the hospice system is broken. Just one. I can't possibly address every single way in which it's fractured, but holy shit, I believe this one sets a very good example and says a lot about hospice care when we've barely touched the tip of the iceberg and we've already got salespeople wearing scrubs and selling hospice to those who don't need it. But don't hit on Marsha too hard because she did do some good for the industry in the end. See, she and another one of her colleagues, Don Richardson, learned that enrolling illegible patients in hospice is actually illegal. The two of them reported to Sarah Care and filed a whistleblower case, getting the company sued for Medicare fraud. Unfortunately, as important and groundbreaking as this case was, there are still so many more to be had and so many other ways to exploit this very broken system. Nothing ever works well on the honor system. I mean, maybe those little farm stands on the side of the road that trust you'll put a few dollars in the basket if you want some apples, have good luck, but on a governmental healthcare level, the honor system doesn't cut it. There's too much money to be had by lying and hospice care is unfortunately no different. More and more private equity firm owned hospices have opened up in recent years. Given just how expensive this care is, a for-profit provider can make over a million dollars with just 20 patients. 20 as in two zero. I mean, hell, is it any wonder hospice scams have become all the rage in recent years? According to this report in The New Yorker, federal payments are distributed via this honor system because the government trusts that billers will submit accurate payment claims. And I'm sorry, but since when has the government trusted us with, oh, I don't know, anything? You're saying I could open a private practice, effectively lie about the patients I serve, get millions of dollars, and potentially not even get caught? Uncle Sam is a blind, greedy idiot. But seriously, this does happen, and these very cases are called phantom patients. One 29-year-old pregnant woman learned that she was enrolled in hospice because she visited her doctor for a blood test. In Texas, one hospice owner even told his staff to purposefully overdose a patient because he was there too long. Quote, he texted a nurse about one patient, he better not make it to tomorrow or I will blame you. The owner was sentenced to more than 13 years in prison for fraud in a plea deal that made no allegations about patient deaths. Quite a horrific doctor, right? And I mean, yeah, he's not a doctor. I mean, plenty of them aren't. You don't need any form of a medical background to actually open up a hospice care center. Some have been owned by vacation rental hosts, attorneys, and former drug dealers. The latter apparently opened the hospice purely to get his hands on more narcotics, which, not surprising. And I do wish I was joking. It sounds like a bad action movie involving the Adam Sandler type actor. A drug business running out of a hospice and the old people are in on it, secretly badass and hiding their pills to sell later, but I digress. Weird bad plot aside, that's how poor these regulations are. People who didn't even sign up for hospice are punished because they were put into it by a bad faith actor. Some have even had their lives at risk because of this. Cancer patients lose access to chemotherapy, others are denied kidney dialysis, mammograms, coverage for life-saving medications, and spots on the waiting list for an organ transplant. And that's all because of somebody else's greed. I just want you to think for a moment just how devastating this is, because this needs to sink in. Let's just say an older loved one, perhaps one of your grandparents, is fighting for their life. They need a liver transplant to make it, and they're desperate to get on a list for the next one that meets their needs. Hopefully it won't be long, but 
you're not getting word. Will a match come soon? Can they even get on that list? But then out of nowhere, you learn that they're not permitted to be on the waiting list. They were denied. They're in hospice, you're told, but that never happened. They've never been in hospice. But someone, somehow, signed them up for it. Their name was registered at a facility you've never heard of before, one that they've certainly never heard of. They were never checked in on. Their stay was never confirmed. But because someone had their information, what's done is done. No place on the waiting list. No liver is coming. Because some asshole thought they could make a buck off of your grandparent. I think I'd lose my absolute mind, to be quite honest. But unfortunately, this hell is common enough that Sandy Morales, a former case manager at the California Senior Medicare Patrol Hotline, posted warnings in Spanish and English around her community. Quote, Have you suddenly lost access to your doctor? The notice is read. Can't get your medications at the pharmacy? Beware, you may have been tricked into signing up for a program that is medically unnecessary for you. These scams are taking advantage of some of the most vulnerable people out there. What if these elderly people don't have anyone to actually advocate for them? What if someone gets into a car wreck or suddenly gets a fatal diagnosis and needs hospice, but's denied because of this fraud? Certainly, it can be reported, but there's so little oversight here that we shouldn't have to be asking these questions in the first place. There's really no doubt about it. Hospice is a broken system. But what if you have to be in it? Is it all bad once you're in? Again, because I feel like this needs repeating, not all hospice patients are abused. I don't want anyone walking away from this episode terrified to put their loved ones in hospice because of a few horror stories. However, the way the system is designed at present, it's way too easy for bad actors to thrive and go unchecked too. The Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General published a report examining hospice practices over a 10-year span. And that report showed that at times, poor quality care went hand in hand with families simply not receiving the information they needed about their loved ones. And we're not talking throwaway information, but things like inappropriately promising services such as house cleaning that aren't actually provided through hospice. Quote, that means they unknowingly gave up treatments that could cure or at least manage their conditions and instead received only palliative care. In North Texas, nurses trying to justify higher hospice payments would give excessive doses of morphine, sometimes injuring and even killing their patients. Dementia patients would also make decisions about their care without assistance, which, you know, isn't best for a dementia patient. Though these might sound like one-off incidents and not problems within the system itself, it really is the latter, because often these abusive practices are not discovered until people have died, and that's if the problem is ever discovered at all. Over a span of 20,000 inspection records, over 3,000 of them, a little more than a seventh, have serious complaints such as doctors and nurses being hard to reach, missed medications, and even missed visits. I wonder how many complaints have been missed or unreported because when you're dealing with a vulnerable group of people that may or may not have advocates, it's reasonable to assume that there's underreporting going on too. While I'd hope that care is improving as we learn more about healthcare in general, the opposite is true for hospice. Instead, there's high variability in quality of care. You might get an amazing nurse and hospice provider, or you could be downright scammed. Keep in mind that while no kind of negligence is good, negligence of a dying elderly person can result in death. This isn't a forgetting to bring chicken soup home for someone with the flu kind of problem. This is a bed sores, dangerous falls, dehydration, and fatal mistreatment kind of problem. But what exactly is there to do? 
let's say you're in that position where you notice that your loved one is struggling and the hospice carers are unable to help. Maybe they're overworked, understaffed, and we'll get into that in a moment. But let's just say that your loved one has difficulty breathing, they ended up with serious bed sores, or they even fell. Then back to the hospital you go, again. As Politico explains, these are the very hospitals that patients picked hospice to avoid. No one, especially people that may be dying, should feel the need to choose between the lesser of two evils. For years now, watchdog agencies and trade groups have been crying out for hospice reform, citing various methods that can be done to curb abuses, like modifying the hospice payment structure, for example. A ton of entrepreneurs are creating for-profit hospice facilities in Nevada, Texas, Arizona, and California. Quote, as part of their recommendations, the trade group flags several specific ways that CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, could use its power to curb the inappropriate proliferation of hospice licenses, such as increasing the number of inspections for new providers, limiting Medicare hospice certifications in high-growth areas, and cutting off funding to high-risk operators. And what's, I don't know, what's amazing but in a terrible way is I think these should be basic things. Like the fact that these are being suggested tells me that these are not being fully implemented if anywhere. And don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely in agreement. Inspect the hell out of these facilities. Research the owners. Be sure their licenses are valid. Go all in for it. But it also kind of baffles me that this hasn't been the standard all along. While there are a ton of different reasons as to why hospice processes may have remained unchanged, I do want to touch upon one that can be easily changed the fear of discussing death. I touched upon this in my episode about the funeral industry and how one of the reasons it can be so predatory is because the industry itself is primarily interacting with families of the newly deceased. It's not as if we're doing business with the funeral industry every day. Many of us aren't even familiar with the process of death or arranging a funeral until we have to do it ourselves. Some people in the industry, such as Caitlin of Ask a Mortician, are spearheading the death-positive movement. And that doesn't mean being happy about death, but addressing the simple fact that we're all going to die, and the importance of making death plans and discussing your wishes with your family members ahead of time. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say it's something to look forward to, but it's something that does need to be acknowledged. How's that phrase go? There's only two things in life that are certain, that's death and taxes. So we already know how to deal with taxes, so now the death part, you know, got to deal with that too. And I understand, maybe I, I, I'm being too overzealous by assuming everybody understands taxes, but you know what I mean. For the most part, most people with brain cells in their heads do understand taxes, and all of us, I assume, have some sort of fear of death or dying and what may or may not be in the afterlife. So anyway... In my opinion, I think we see hospice in much the same way. No one wants to imagine their loved ones on their deathbed, and the idea of slowly dying is terrifying to many of us. But it's important that we don't ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist either. People like Hadley, the nurse I showed in the introduction, have openly discussed what dying means to her as a hospice nurse. She too has explained how important it is to address the simple, inevitable fact that death happens. Quote, Someone gets diagnosed with a terminal illness, and we have a culture where you have to fight. That's the terminology we use, fight against it. So the family won't say, do you want to be buried or cremated? Because those are not fighting words. Now, many of us, from lawmakers to average everyday folks, are pretty uncomfortable discussing death. It's obvious why in this case, but we need to. Our dead and dying deserve a voice. But there's one last person we haven't talked about here. We've discussed the system and the patients, but what about the nurses? 
What about those that are working within this broken system? Well, let's get into discussing them in the final section of today's episode, right after a quick word from today's sponsor. From billion-dollar ad budgets and arena naming rights to tens of thousands of retail locations, big wireless providers spend big money to appear like they're your only option. How do they actually afford it all? Well, that big bill you get every single month, obviously. But Mint Mobile has a little bit of a different idea. Instead of brick-and-mortar overhead, Mint Mobile is online only. What does that mean for you? Well, it means a whole bucket full of savings because wireless plans from Mint Mobile start at just 15 bucks a month. That's for unlimited talk, text, and data starting at just 15 bucks a month. And when you're dealing with phone bills like I used to that were like, what, 180 bucks a month, stuff like that, starting a phone plan with just 15 bucks a month, and I do Mint Mobile's like unlimited everything, which is like 30 bucks a month, that's a huge difference, which means that's a lot of money you can save to pay towards other bills, maybe try to build the tiniest of savings accounts or whatever you need that extra money for, but it gives you that option to do so. And what's really great about Mint Mobile is you can take your current phone, your phone number, your contacts, move all of that over to Mint Mobile. Or if you want to do what I do, you can get a whole new little bit of everything. They'll cover you either way. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure you go to mintmobile.com slash casket. That's mintmobile.com slash casket. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash casket. In case you haven't heard, there is a massive labor shortage in the healthcare industry. Some of it is from the pandemic. Some of it is due to terrible environments. Healthcare workers have had to endure like you name it. Employees are pretty tough to keep nowadays. One New York Times article from 2021 said that turning patients away has become a frustrating reality because these people don't exactly have the time to wait. It's hard enough to accept that you're dying and you have to ask for help, but being told no one can help you during that time is pretty devastating. One woman, Miss Cotton, told the New York Times, quote, I don't know how many people are ahead of me. Basically, I have to wait for people to die, and that's not a pleasant thought. Nurses have so many patients that people have to be turned away, and that's an unfortunate reality of the system we're dealing with. And while mistreatment should never happen, it is important to understand that it can happen when hospice nurses are burned out, stressed, and given an overwhelming amount of patients. According to Hospice News, some nurses have reported having to travel over 100 miles per day to visit 25 or more patients. In an eight-hour workday, that means patients only get 19 minutes to visit with their nurse. That doesn't include the driving time, so it's pretty safe to say that these nurses either have no choice but to rush through visits with their patients or work far longer than eight hours. And it's probably a little bit of both. If you take a look at Hadley's schedule, for example, she's extremely busy, rushing around all day trying to do right by all of her patients and that's with only five visits. People on their deathbed absolutely deserve to have someone who's patient and attentive as a nurse, but the hospice system has set them and their nurses up for failure. It's also a plain and simple fact that there are a lot of old people in need of care. As healthcare improves, the age of death goes up, and in 2030, there will be over 61 million baby boomers ranging from 66 to 84 years old. That's right, 61 million of them. If all of them need this type of care, that's one nurse for every 40 people. Let's say only half of them need care because half of Medicare recipients use hospice. That's still one nurse for at least 20 people. And that's not even including people 85 years or more. 
I don't want to say this is a guarantee. This is just an estimate. And obviously I'm not a medical professional analyst of any sorts, but I think it is safe to say that no matter what, the burnout doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Unless hospice nurses are going to get paid a lot more and everyone wants to become one in coming years, which realistically I don't think is going to happen, the reality is we have a big problem on our hands. After all, aside from the general qualifications and struggles anyone in the healthcare industry faces, being a hospice nurse takes a special kind of person. Studies show that the emotional challenges are especially difficult as they're effectively in charge of making sure someone has a good death. And do you want that kind of pressure on your head? I most certainly don't. And the folks who do work in that field and are passionate about it are far and few between. Not only that, but there are other factors at play here too. These distressed families might not be exactly the easiest to interact with during such a difficult time, and it's not unheard of for them to get aggressive, taking out their frustration on the hospice nurses. Some support site posts read like this, quote, "'Last Saturday, I was treated disrespectively, parentheses, abusively, by two separate families, one family verbally ganging up on me, throwing my bag across the room, yelling, complaining about the case manager, not answering questions about desired postmortem care, and finally escorting me out of the house in a huff, stating that they should never have called me and refusing to make arrangements for body release. The other yelling, screaming, telling me to stop calling, it was my only call to the son of an SNF patient to inform him of his mother's passing, refusing to respond to questions concerning mortuary wishes and hanging up on me without saying if he would be coming to say goodbye. I was probably emotionally fragile this day having just returned from seeing my terminally ill father, but after the visit when they threw my bag and verbally harassed me for almost an hour, I cried all the way home. Short drive, but still. Responses said that it's not unheard of for families in denial about death to act in this way. Far be it from me to tell someone how to handle grief, but if you're also abusing someone in the process, then I don't think that's okay. It's not fair to the nurse, and this behavior should not be normalized, plain and simple. Seriously, to any hospice nurses out there, if you've made it thus far, then I give my props to you because I cannot imagine the kind of mental strength it takes to do your job. Hospice nurses are often underappreciated. Patients are stuck within this broken system, and the system itself doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. And truthfully, and probably the worst part, is most of us are horrifically uneducated and uninformed as to what's even going on in this system. And one of the few times you get a glimpse to see what's going on is also probably during a very traumatic time for yourself, your family members, a loved one, because that's probably the first time you're having to actually interact with the system and see what's going on. But otherwise, you may not be aware to what's lurking right underneath the surface. I believe this is an industry that absolutely needs more eyeballs on it. And again, death is an inevitable part of our lives. And if this is a potential process for many Americans, many people around the globe just in general, I think this is an industry we absolutely need to make sure is tip-top, in shape, and has some of the best folks around employed within it. But until we actually decide to give a damn about end-of-life care and anything of that sort, we're going to continue to have these problems. And again, as long as this industry is filled with tons and tons of greed, which doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, these problems will continue to multiply. But with all of that being said, that is unfortunately the end of today's episode. I'm sorry I don't have a great ending. Sometimes the bad guys win, and it just sucks. And it seems to be that way, and it doesn't seem like it's intent on changing anytime soon. But let me know your thoughts. And thank you as always for joining me for another episode of The Corporate Casket. I do always appreciate it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.